This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. So first, 72 laborers brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. Second, as we receive this offering, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it. So, um, again, uh, good morning. My name is Yunin. I use he and him pronouns. And as, as Tempo said, I'm a, a senior lay student here at the temple. And I wanted to speak today uh, about appreciation, the practice of appreciation. We tend to think of appreciation as uh, a sort of thankful state of mind that arises perhaps spontaneously in response to conditions that are favorable, uh, meaning conditions that we like or that we benefit from. Uh, And this is not entirely wrong. It's a good starting point. but the, the appreciation that I want to speak about is, is larger. I would maybe call it great appreciation. Um, and this kind of appreciation is not dependent on circumstances. And it, it doesn't just arise spontaneously. It can be cultivated and practiced, even though it doesn't depend on circumstances. So these lines are from the Mil Gata which is the, uh, it's a verse that we chant before taking a meal. Um, we do it sometimes, we did it this morning here at the temple actually. Um, it's often a part of the centerpiece of the, the Orioki ceremony at the monastery, which is the formal liturgy of taking a meal, uh, which happens uh, especially during Sishin, as is happening up at the monastery, is ending up at the monastery today. Uh, The full verse is a good bit longer. These are just the first two lines. Um, But I I, I found, uh, just looking into this, that that the first two lines were enough uh, for now. (laughs) Just the right amount. Um, Of course, the liturgy of receiving food is important in many religious traditions. Uh, I think most, as far as I'm aware. So in Christianity, there's the Eucharist, the... uh, um, in which the bread and wine is transformed into the, the body and blood of Christ, the Passover Seder, and the meal that commemorates the liberation of the Jewish people from bondage. Or even just the simple act of saying grace before a meal, very kind of ordinary liturgy. I think it's all based in the recognition that we, we can't live without taking life. And, you know, we can move the line about what sort of life is acceptable to take or not. So I I personally am vegetarian. uh, uh, But no matter where you draw that line, you're still taking life. Um, So we should put the, the, uh, we should use this opportunity 
to um, of taking life, to put this precious human life that we receive as a result to good use. And that's what the liturgy reminds us. First, 72 labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. Food is explicit here, but there are many other kinds of offerings that we receive once you start to look. I mean, even, even with food, there's the, the plants that grow the food, the farmer that, that harvests it, the people that transport it and bring it to you, the people who work in the grocery store, if that's where you get your food, the person who cooks the meal, or water. You know, these days we just turn on a faucet and it just comes out. It's pretty miraculous. But if you've ever been in a place where that's not the case, it's, it's, it's a difference. Even that here, it's a result of generations of, of uh, hydrological civil engineers building a whole infrastructure that's funded by taxpayers. Um, here our water comes from the Catskill Preserve, which is where the monastery is. Um, and for that to happen, dams were constructed. Uh, some villages were relocated because they were flooded. We don't, I never thought of that down here, but when I lived up there, I realized that, that people remember this. It was a century ago, more. But people still remember. Some people are still upset about it. There's the oxygen that we breathe from the photosynthetic plants, clothing and shelter. It's often, unless we make our own clothes, um, perhaps made from petrochemicals. Most Many fibers are these days, as I understand. Often put together by people in, who work in, in difficult conditions, exploitative conditions sometimes. We have the gift of life from our parents, regardless of how skillful or unskillful they were. We're alive thanks to them. The, the time and opportunity to practice this morning and uh, the teachings themselves have been handed down for 2,500 years uh, from men and women who devoted their life to this. Uh, Daito Roshi uh, founded this order, died about 12 years ago. Myotai Sensei, who was his student, she was the, the leader of this community for many years and, and helped us find this building and purchase it and set it up uh, the way it is. So even if you've never met her, she left many years ago, but we still benefit from her practice. There's people who come in every week who uh, uh, to arrange the altar flowers or to help clean the Buddha hall or the zendo to pitch in in, in many ways. And there's countless hands and eyes that are um, helping us. That you know, oftentimes some of them we see and some of them we don't. Some of them we'll never see. So it's good to to appreciate these efforts. You know, another uh, dimension to appreciation is not just gratitude for what I receive, but it's a sort of basic reverence for 
life, for reality, just because things are. We appreciate them, regardless of what they do or don't do for us. Maizumi Roshi, who is Daido's teacher, used to say, please enjoy this wonderful life together. Just to sit here and breathe, eyes see, ears hear, nose smells. It's quite miraculous to feel joyful, to feel wretched, to feel sleepy, to feel nothing in particular. How does it all come about? What is this? You could also say we should just, we just appreciate even without an object. It's sort of like Zazen. You know, we don't, fundamentally, we don't sit to calm the mind or to, to become a better person or even to become enlightened. We don't even sit for the sake of Zazen. We just sit. First 72 labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. Second, as we receive this offering, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it. People sometimes hear this second part, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it, is is a kind of guilt trip. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say your practice and your virtue and practice don't deserve it. It just says consider. Look closely. You know, giving and receiving always go together. And we're receiving, and we should we should know what are we giving. Dogen says, giving means non-greed. Non-greed means not to covet. Not to covet means not to curry favor. Even if you govern the four continents, you should always convey the authentic path with non-greed. It is like giving away unneeded belongings to someone you don't know. To offer flowers blooming on a distant mountaintop to the Tathagata, or again, to offer treasures you had in your former life to sentient beings. Whether it is of teaching or material, each gift has its value and is worth giving. Although sometimes what we give, um, the effect of our actions is not beneficial. It's harmful or destructive. I think usually uh, when this happens, often we're, we're blind to this fact. We, it's a sort of willful ignorance often because it's painful to see that. But as practitioners, we vow to see it, to see the effects of our actions, the effects of karma. And this too is a way of appreciating our life. We can't take responsibility for something until we acknowledge it, and we can't acknowledge it until we see it. And sometimes this requires courage. I I was thinking, and I was was hesitating to bring this example because it's kind of extreme, but I recently finished a book um, that really affected me called um, Into That Darkness by a woman named Gita Sereni, who is an Austrian journalist. And uh, it's about a man named... uh, uh, Franz uh, Stangl, who was the uh, 
the commandant of uh, Sobibor and Treblinka, which are the, the Nazi extermination camps, uh, where around a million people were killed. And, and this man, after the war, he escaped to Brazil, where he lived until the 60s, and he was eventually arrested and extradited to Germany, where he was uh, tried and convicted on unimaginable uh, co-responsibility for 900,000 counts of homicide. <laughs> I realize this is heavy reading material. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's also, it has a personal resonance for me. You know, I lived in um, uh, Germany for several years in the, in the early 90s. It's where I really started Zen practice. And, and I, I met a number of people, of men from this generation, uh, who had been involved in the war and often didn't talk about it, but some of them did. I also feel very grateful to, um, to, to people there. Um, you know, I was, at the, I, was a, I was pretty young. I was a bit of an entitled punk at the time. <laughs> people were very kind to me. Anyway, uh, so the author, Serenade, she visits this, this man in prison. She, she thought she saw something in him. Uh, sort of, she says, a semblance of moral awareness that she wanted to explore. So she, she visits him and starts this series of interviews. And, you know, she, at first he just, he's going through the same arguments that he made at his trial. He's defending himself, you know. I was just following orders. Um, I didn't really do anything. You don't understand what it was like. And she listens to him patiently, and then she says, look, I, let me tell you what I'm here for. I'm not interested in, in all the arguments. That goes on forever. I want to hear the story of your life. As a child, as a boy, as a young man, you know, how you got involved in all of this, your parents, your friends, what you loved, what you hated, and eventually he agrees. He says, you know, I, he comes back to her and he says, I thought about what you said. I, I hadn't understood before. I, I didn't understand what you wanted. I think I understand now. I want to do it. I want to try to do it. So he tells her about his childhood growing up in Austria. He was trained as a weaver of textiles, but then he realized that that was a dead end, so he entered the police academy and became a police officer, and he tried to be a decent police officer. This is his story, so perhaps he's, you know, changing details to fit his own benefit. We don't know. She does try and press him, but, you know, after the Anschluss, the, uh, when the Nazis took over, he felt that he had to join the SS, or he would be politically suspect and lose his job, or perhaps be sent to prison or killed. So he does. Later, he becomes involved in something called Operation T4, which was the forced euthanasia program. And then later, he was transferred to Operation Reinhardt, which was the, the actual Holocaust, where they built and operated the extermination camps. Now, it's a little, a series of, of small steps over about 15 years. You know, steps where he, he would say, I, I, I knew that this was wrong, but I had to take care of my family. I was afraid for my life. And so 
a series of, of maybe failures of courage. And she listens to him. She's sympathetic, but she presses him too. And then she talks to his family. She talks to people who survived the camps. And it's, it's kind of severe cognitive dissonance. It's, it's because it turns out he was, he was a devoted husband and a, and a loving father. And yet, even, even some of the, the survivors, some of them said that, you know, compared, comparatively, he was pretty decent. But all this stuff, meanwhile, was happening. And he, he didn't want to see it. And so he said that he, he just, he was a talented administrator, so he buried himself in his work rather than look too closely at things. I was looking, researching this, and, and I found um, a review by the, uh, by the Auschwitz survivor, Elie Wiesel, and uh, he's a Nobel laureate, a writer. And he said, um, it's not the murderer in Stangl that terrifies us, it's the human being. So they're talking, and, and she's pressing him. And eventually, um, they're in their last scheduled interview, and she uh, she's starting to push him and suggest that this is this is your last chance, you know, to face up to yourself. She basically says that to him, and then she writes, you know, his immediate response was automatic and unyielding. My conscience is clear about what I did, he said and the same stiffly spoken words he'd used countless times before. But this time, she's talking now, at this time I said nothing. He paused and waited, but the room remained silent. I have never intentionally hurt anyone, myself, he said, with a different, less incisive emphasis, and waited again for a long time. For the first time in all these many days, I gave him no help. There was no more time. He gripped the table with both hands as if he was holding on to it. But I was there, he said then, in a curiously dry and tired tone of resigna resignation. He says these few sentences had taken almost half an hour to pronounce. So yes, he said finally, very quietly, in reality, I share the guilt, because my guilt, my guilt, only now in these talks, now that I've talked about it all for the first time, he stopped. He had pronounced the words, my guilt, but more than the words, the finality of it was in the sagging of his body and on his face. After more than a minute, he started again, a half-hearted attempt in a dull voice. My guilt, he said, is that I am still here. That is my guilt. I should have died. That is my guilt. She asks him, do you mean you should have had the courage to die? You can put it like that, he said vaguely, sounding tired. So they, they, they end this interview. And she says he gets up. They both get up. When we stood up, she says, he suddenly became very gay. Fatigue appeared to have gone. He helped me pick up the papers and insisted on carrying the coffee cups. When I waved from outside, he smiled and waved back. She continues, uh, Stangl died 19 hours later, after noon, noon the next day, of heart failure. According to the autopsy, he had not committed suicide. And then she says, I think he died when he did, 
because finally, however briefly, he faced himself and told the truth. It was a monumental effort to reach that fleeting moment when he became the man he should have been. So obviously this is an extreme case. But I, I was reading this and I remembered you know, how Dido used to say that, that each one of us has the potential to manifest the entire gamut of human nature from Mother Teresa and Gandhi to Genghis Khan and Adolf Hitler. It depends on our karma and what seeds we cultivate. You know, of course, most people fall somewhere in the middle. For me, I, what, I, what I take from this is just how important it is to practice humility. I ask myself, would I have responded differently in his shoes? I don't know. I, I hope I would. But of course, this isn't just the past. You know, we have a history in this country as well that some of the dark aspects have been coming up in the last few years. So it's ongoing. I also really appreciate um, how I read this is that it's always possible to look more deeply into um, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it and to begin taking responsibility. This person, if we, if we can, you know, there, there are people who read this and are very skeptical of it and saying, why are you even, uh, you know, you're just giving him a platform, well, you know, which is, which is a fair point. I don't know. But uh, from the point of view of Buddhist practice, it's always possible to take responsibility, no matter what we've done. As long as we have life and consciousness, we have the ability to turn towards our life, our actions, and to take responsibility. At another point, she asks him, do you think that time in Poland taught you anything? And he says, yes. It taught me that everything human has its origin in human weakness. I think he's talking about himself, but also some of his experiences. This resonated with me, but I would, I would use a different word. I would say everything human has its origin in human vulnerability. You know, we need others to survive. We need each other. We need food, water, shelter, air. That's just to survive. If we're to flourish, we need community, love, meaning. And we can't entirely control whether we get those things. We try, but it's not entirely in our control. And because it's not entirely in our control, we experience fear, you know. It's frightening to acknowledge that vulnerability. And, and one way to respond to that is to, we try to fortify this sense of self that we have. We erect an identity that's independent, self-sufficient, impervious, impregnable. We try to optimize the self, to improve it, to perfect it. 
if we feel on some level unloved or unlovable, we may try to fill that void with many things, power, position, wealth, success. I'm not, I wouldn't say that defenses can't be useful. They can. Sometimes we need them. We encounter people in situations that are, that are not coming from very good intentions. And it's important. You know, practice, as I understand it, never tells us to cast aside our intelligence. And there's nothing inherently wrong with power, wealth, success. It's just that it's very easy to get attached to them and use them to distract ourselves from ourselves. Which is why lay practice is considered such an advanced practice, because we're in the fire. So one alternative is to fortify the self, but we could also accept our vulnerability. And it's not like you either do one or the other. We all do both all the time. We're always making choices. Accept that we need each other, that we're supported by the efforts of others, and that others are supported by our efforts. You know, not just accept, but to practice that. There's a... um, some of you are probably familiar with this, uh, a Japanese parable about the, uh, the banquet table with the chopsticks. So it's said that in hell, there's a banquet table piled with delicious food, and everyone sitting around the, the sinners in hell, I guess, everyone sitting around the banquet table has six-foot-long chopsticks, and they can't feed themselves because the chopsticks are too long. And said so that heaven is a banquet table piled with delicious food, and everyone has six-foot chopsticks, but they feed each other. And so they're able to enjoy the food. So much of, of Zen training is, is a process of softening, tenderizing, exposing our vulnerability. I was, I, I, I spoke to this a little yesterday. I was, I, just realized, you know, so much of, we say that Zen practice is challenging, and it, it is, but the, I think that the real rigor of it is not the, it's not the schedule or the sore knees, it's facing yourself over and over. In my experience, if we practice long enough, you end up heartbroken. And we fear this. And at the same time, we're drawn to it because we know it's a kind of buried treasure. We know that we sense in some way that the one step beyond that heartbreak is the, the radiant heart of, of great compassion. And we can't see it with the physical eye. You can't think it with the ordinary mind. And so we, we just have to trust. You just have to take a risk and trust. So, to appreciate this life is to study it. That's how we appreciate it. And the main way we study it, not the only way, but one way is through zazen. It's the study of our life. What is this life that we are studying? What is this self that we are studying? What is this?
Maizumi says, please enjoy this wonderful life together. So uh, I just wanted to finish up with a poem by a woman named Izumi Shikibu. It was a 10th century Japanese poet. I've, I've used her work before. I, I really love her, her poetry. She was a handmaiden to, the, to a former empress at the Heian court. And she, uh, she had a very tumultuous romantic life, uh, got tangled up in several court scandals, um, and recorded all of this through her poetry. And also from time to time she would retreat from the court and spend time in a, in a Buddhist monastery. She really, she considered becoming a nun, although she never did. And so this poem is from, from the latter part of her life. She says, Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I, I think that's a pretty good description of Zazen, actually. You know, it's not spelled out in the poem, but if the, if the moon is in the mid-sky at dawn, that would mean it's, it's half full. So it's half illuminated and half dark. And yet it's perfectly round. No part left out. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.